It's not often that words like marketing, creativity, and digitalization come up in the same sentence. However, digital transformation is working to take marketing and make it more of a science than an art. But can we really automate creativity? And do we risk losing the human touch as we push for greater automation? Hi, I'm Jane Singer, and thank you for tuning in to A Seat at the Table. As ever, it's lovely to have you here as part of our global community that now spans 93 countries. It's wonderful that you're taking time out of your day to join us. I really do appreciate it. I hope that you're enjoying learning from the many truly outstanding people who are guests on the show, and that, like me, you always gain some new insights, understanding, and maybe even some inspiration. To learn more about how digital transformation is changing, shaping, and maybe even revolutionizing advertising and marketing, I turn to Prantik Mazumdar, Managing Director of CXM Group. Prantik built one of the most awarded independent digital marketing firms in Southeast Asia. He has pioneered new ways to use behavioral economics to drive CRM and better understand customer decision-making. In this episode, Prantik talks about why successful marketing is about building brand value rather than getting more clicks or likes, how automation is being humanized, and the challenges of trying to automate creativity. Before we get started, if you want an easy-to-read, straightforward view of key shifts and developments in Asian supply chains without reading through endless amounts of bloated text and overly complicated graphs, if you're tired of wasting time trying to piece together the overwhelming amount of information online or in other reports and you just want someone to make it simple, then the current situation is exactly what you're looking for. These concise roundups of key news and information help international sourcing execs get only the news you really need summarized so that you can reclaim your time and your inbox. For immediate access, go to thecurrentsituation.net. That's thecurrentsituation.net. I'll leave links in the show notes and, of course, over on our website. Okay, let's find out from Prantik how marketing is getting a digital transformation. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast, Prantik, because I think what you're talking about is an interesting topic. And we talk about a lot of different things on this show, but it's not often that we have digital transformation and marketing in the same sentence, never mind in the same podcast. So I'm really curious to hear from your point of view where you see things going. What effect is digital transformation having on marketing and advertising? No, pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. And yeah, looking forward to the conversation because, yeah, I've, I've been working in this domain for the last uh, 12 years. And as you rightly said, marketing in itself has just has just taken so many different twists and turns. And I, and I dare say there's a lot more to be done. So absolutely, let's dive in. So as you look at the situation, what do you see happening? I mean, how do you see this digital transformation that's typically happening in other sectors. But how do you see that impacting marketing and advertising? Yeah, you know, fundamentally, the biggest shift that I've seen over the last two plus decades that I've kind of you know, either studied this or worked in this domain is, I think, really comes down to two things. When I was growing up and when I was in school, college, there used to be this particular uh, notion of mass communication. You know, every university or college had a mass communication degree. That has completely transformed and moved to 
personalized one-on-one interactions at scale. And the classic examples that I'm using common examples, but I'm sure there are you know localized nuances to this, but you look at Amazon, right? The communication that you would get from an Amazon or from you know any of these e-commerce or fintech companies, it's all about segmenting their audience into Jane and Prantik. Now there is, and it's not just limited to demography. It's not just limited to Hong Kong or Singapore. It idly comes down to very small cohorts and idly the individual. And I think that's a massive change. You've moved from mass comm to niche, individualized, personalized communication, which is driven at scale. And I think that's massive because the whole objective of getting here is to drive higher relevance. Because obviously, if a message is personalized to my name, my locality, my preference, my status, my desires, uh, the hypothesis is that it's going to lead to better outcomes. And I dare say it does. On the other side, it's really about measurement. Not that, you know, one should measure just because, you know, everything that one can measure, and we can talk about that. But I think what it has allowed, you know, and I saw this during, if I juxtapose the, the, how the landscape, the marketing landscape has shifted across the different financial crises. I think this kind of gives you a perspective. And what we noticed is, Every time a crisis happens, the first few budget items to get cut after travel and entertainment is marketing. Hey, why is it that, you know, some other budget isn't getting cut, uh, but the marketing? And that gave me an insight. And one of the insights was because marketing was always considered to be a cost center. It was very hard to justify that, hey, by spending a million dollars on advertising a product, what was the return? What was the ROI? What was the impact? And I think that's where, that's the other thing that shifted. Today, the CTOs, CEOs, uh, CMOs that we work with, today they have real-time dashboards on their mobile devices, iPads, they could be flying anywhere, but they have a pulse that, oh, by running this particular campaign, our traffic increased by X, our share of search engine search volumes increased by Y, our lead generation increased by this. Here is our, we have a better grasp at the unit economics that by investing a billion dollars into our marketing and incrementally why percentage more. So again, it's not foolproof. It's not, uh, you know, very easy to get there. It takes three, four, five years to kind of transform that process. But having done this for insurance brands, telecom brands, e-commerce brands in the region, that's the other thing that one is able to measure the success or failure of the outcome. So to summarize, one is moving from mass communication to personalized niche communication at scale. And the other is measuring what matters. I think that you bring up an important point when you're talking about measurement because technology has enabled us to measure just about everything, right? But not everything is worth measuring and not everything gives us an important indication of where things are going. From your point of view, do you feel that many marketers are being distracted by looking at metrics that don't matter? Absolutely. A classic example is, you know, uh, still a lot of marketers today tend to look at, oh, how many Facebook fans do I have? How much likes I get? You know, nothing wrong with it. Again, it's good fun because it's real time. It's probably exciting for any human being. Your yes. charts going up, up and down. I think it's those products are designed to make you excited. And I think that's where some discipline, some thought, some strategic work needs to come in. So when we work with our clients, step one is to really decipher what's our business objective. We don't start with traffic and engagement and likes and clicks that can come in later. Because right. to me, every business, whether it's a digital business, offline business, 
moment you realize that every business is driven by the same formula of profit equal to revenue minus cost. So I think you're absolutely right that marketers, because they are trained to look at uh, what I would call a lot of noise and buzz. I think marketers, unless intervened or unless trained otherwise, there's a lot of excitement about, oh, this ad did so well. Like last evening, Super Bowl, everyone's like, wow, this particular crypto ad, you know, broke the website, you know, <laughs> this much got, uh, which is fine. It, 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 it feels good. But I think if you start with the end objective of revenue and profit, I think you can come, then plan your way down saying, okay, if I want to drive my revenue up organically by 15%, how much marketing money do I need to spend? Where do right. I need to invest? What's my creative strategy? Am I doing it for what part of the funnel am I solving? Am I trying to get a new customer base or am I you know, trying to churn customers from competitors? If you go through that logical business planning process, I think marketers automatically, their thought process would move to you know, unit economics or metrics that move the needle. You would you wouldn't have too much time or the luxury of time to look at the Facebook likes, Twitter engagement, etc. Those are a part of a metric, but definitely not the most important. I mean, at the end of the day, if a marketer can't over a period of two, three years, talk unit economics, talk, you know, cost of acquisition, uh, cost of customer acquisition, what's your lifetime value of a customer? If that's not there built into your muscle memory, uh, you're right, something's wrong. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up because one of the hardest things to measure is this kind of brand building that takes a lot longer time to get and, and perhaps is a bit more vague, right? It's, it's building image. It's a lot easier to measure when you place an ad, for example, for a sale, right? You say, okay, for the next 48 hours, you'll get 20% off if you buy this. And then you can see how many people purchase and take advantage of that in the next 48 hours it's more difficult for people to measure when I'm putting out an image ad, for example, how much of that is actually impacting the business, how much of that is, is moving the needle, as you say. How could someone approach that? How can you measure that? How can, how, what can you put in place sort of as benchmarks? Yeah, and the good news there is that you're right. So the bad news is it takes time. The good news is I think over the last 20, 30 years, there are a lot of institutions, private organizations that measure brand value. Not only do they measure brand value, they measure the impact of brand value on public stock market performance. Typically end up being your you know, well-known common brands like Coca-Cola, Kellogg, Nestle, Facebook, IBM, etc. In fact, even CFOs today, uh, not just today, over the last you know, 15, 20, 30 years, they use a different term. They call it goodwill. But when you're valuing companies, there is an inherent financial value, but there's also a value in the books determined or attributed to goodwill, which is nothing but a brand perception. So beyond your actual hardware, people, assets, what's the perceptual value? Uh, and this has financial implications. So to me, uh, and you bring out a very good point, this is where the board or the CEO needs to be cognizant that if you're hiring a marketer, a CMO, his or her KPIs can't be just about the short-term KPIs of promos and sales or you know cost of acquisition life. That's important. If I were the CEO, I would set out a benchmark or a target over the next two, three years saying, hey, here is where we stand. Here is where we need to get to. But from a three to five-year period, I think a few things that I would request my C CMO to look at is brand value. Actually, hey, could we do a quick audit with a third-party valuator of what's the perceptual value of my brand today? 
and hey, can we you know increase it by X percentage in the next three to five years, and then plan the budget accordingly. You can't have a lot of leaders obviously like to have goals in space, but their budgets wouldn't justify, right? But that's a good way to start because building a brand is priceless, not just from a financial transaction, from so many other software aspects. Tomorrow, touch wood, if there's a brand crisis, typically it's seen that a brand that has good goodwill tends to be forgiven more often right. than not. So there's a lot more reason to kind of build a good brand and it has to be, in fact, I would actually rate that to be a higher uh, a goal of a higher pedigree than, you know, running your campaigns and getting your leads and sales. That will happen. That's been proven very true. You're right, because when you look at it and you look at the brands that do tend to be ranked in any of these surveys as being the most valuable, that's exactly what they do. I think the challenge for people is it just takes a long time to achieve that. It, it's, it's not fast. Absolutely. It's not fast. Of course, with technology, certain things today, if you look at brands like, you know, a Spotify, et cetera, they've accelerated that process. You know, they've probably achieved in the last decade what maybe a IBM or a Shell or a Coca-Cola would have taken maybe, you know, 25, 30 years to do. So you can accelerate, but you're right. It's, it, it's a long-term process. When we're looking at automation and automation has become a big thing in marketing and it in many ways has been a good thing. It's it saved a lot of time, it saved a lot of money, but at the same time, we're also trying to be more human, to create that more authentic, more personalized connection. How do you see the two working? Can we have that automation without veering too far to the point where we lose the human factor? Yes and no. I mean, again, uh, do I believe that in the next 20 years, we can't, you know, we can't have automated personal touch? No, I, I do believe we are moving in that direction. Uh, but do I believe that the personal touch should be completely lost? Not at all. There's massive value. I think it again boils down to prioritizing what elements of your marketing should have the personal touch. You can literally program that, okay, if this happens, send, send this SMS to her. If she doesn't open it, send her this particular SMS. Uh, if this If she does a ticket booking or a purchase, send her a WhatsApp. So the whole customer journey, I think, you know, 80, 90% actually can be automated and the messaging can be personalized. Today, what's commonplace is, you know, subject headers, your salutations, color of the email, you know, they can all be customized based on personality and the, the recipient. But over time, a lot more can be personalized, which I think is great because it's scalable, it's cost effective, and hopefully that keeps some bandwidth human bandwidth for personal touch where required. But time is not well spent, according to me, on a human call center, because it's it's a very, very difficult experience to scale. Because again, there's only that many people you can have at a call center. In a call center, everyone waits, dials in and waits to press zero to speak uh, human uh, at the end, but that's just physically not possible. But I've recently met a couple of voice startups who have done a fabulous job in Southeast Asia, where Pharma, banking, insurance, call centers are automated by voice, and these are not recorded. This is, it's called neuro NLG, neuro language generation. So they're not following a pattern. They are generating language. In If these things can be automated, there's massive value. But you may want to save your human manpower for a physical event or a physical retail experience, or maybe for a particular segment of your high-end customers who would probably value that. So... I think there is a space for a lot more space for automation and marketing. We have just about scratched the surface, 
marketing, and when I say marketing, I refer to marketing, partnership, customer service. I think a lot of scope for personalization, but I think it's really about prioritizing where and how the human touch is best used. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops because for many companies, that's a key differentiator. And yet at the same time, it is very, very expensive. So to understand when you can use it and when you can replace it uh, will be a challenge, I think, for a lot of companies. When you're looking at what's coming ahead in this marketing, particularly marketing as driven by technology, what do you see on the horizon? What are you seeing that's not here yet, but that you feel is coming? These are fantastic technologies. And if I kind of abstract it, if I zoom out, essentially what I'm seeing is the biggest you know, challenge in any sort of communication, if you want to automate and scale it, is context. And I think that is where, uh, that's one of the areas where I foresee in the next decade, we'll see a lot of automation of context across multiple channels, which means, for example, if I'm speaking to a Singapore Airlines hotline and I'm kind of sharing my grievance and suddenly the call drops, it's such a frustrating experience because I'll have yes. to call the you know person again. It will be a different person who picks up. I have to restart the story. Chatbots today are not you know good enough, to be honest. I just had my experience uh, as sure. I flew back to India. Now, you know, yeah. So and one of the reasons is because there is there are a few points of communication that's that's broken. So there is no single source of truth in many organizations. There's no single source of context. They're all operating in silos. So one of the biggest changes that I hope to see and that I think it's coming in the next, uh, hopefully across many industries in the next five, six years is this single source of truth and single source of context, which is accessible by the marketing department, the finance department, by customer service, so that from a customer point of view, whether I'm chatting with you, whether it's a Zoom call, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a, a in-person meeting, the customer journey has to be stitched up very well. There should be very little loss of context. It sounds good on PowerPoint, but it's a tough problem to crack. But I think this is something you'll see, and I dare say the likes of Salesforce, Adobe, or new age companies trying to solve. So I think that's one huge bucket of problem solving that I see. Next is creativity. To me, you know, if everything else gets automated, what is very hard to automate is creativity. But again, I'm seeing some interesting developments around not automating creativity, but sort of supporting the the creative process. For example, you know, the whole ideation process of what's the next campaign? What's the next big idea? Today, it's a human brainstorming, and that's great. But I think it can be research and insight-led. So I'm seeing certain organizations have real-time dashboards that want to use the input factor to kind of decipher, hey, you know what, what do we... What do we think about? What should the campaign be all about? So there's a, there is a machine that could provide these inputs to the human ideation process. That's one. The second is, you know, assuming you, you've generated a lot of ideas, before you launch and invest tons of dollars, you want to test it out. So there are already a few companies over the last four or five years that use the same medical technology of fMRI scanning to basically put these fMRI caps and show different uh, you know, audience groups, particular campaigns, and just test out what are they sensing, what are they feeling? Because surveys, I'm not a big, I mean, it's a good start, but I'm not a big believer because I don't think humans can necessarily articulate what they want. I think humans are very good at articulating what they don't want. <laughs> but 
to be able to articulate what they want, I think it's hard. And B, you know, sometimes these surveys are incentivized or people are pressured, so they may not be able to, uh, you know, say the truth. But if I, if you can actually sense what's happening in their brains or what's, if you can look at eye movements and their feeling, I think fMRI-led technology is something that I think will become uh, commonplace in the next decade because you want to really understand what your audience is feeling as opposed to articulating or being forced to articulate. So to me, I think, you know, the whole single point of uh, customer data, single point of customer context, and the other area being using fMRI technology to kind of understand customer insights and their feelings and notions, I think two things that I kind of foresee that the technology is there. Now it's time to kind of uh, test it out and institutionalize it across clients. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was speaking to someone the other day and we were talking about that in a retail context, about the importance of getting deeper into customer data from the point of view, like you're saying, of what customers are thinking as opposed to just what they're actually doing. We can always measure what people buy, but we can't really understand necessarily why they bought it or why they didn't buy something else. So I think you're making some very good points on that to be able to, like you say, get into someone's head and really be able to almost read their minds. It's sort of scary when you think about it. <laughs> and that and that brings a good point. You know, the, the, the scary part is, an, is in fact something that's already happening, that all of this has to happen within uh, privacy-friendly frameworks. And it's a good one that you bring because I think all of what I just said is only possible. And if you look at Europe, Europe's GDPR or Philippine or India's PDPA equivalent uh, legal documents, I mean, the marketing tech world is being pushed to massively respect individuals, you know, confidentiality. So, you know, whatever automation that I'm talking about, all of it idly has to be in a uh, in a privacy-friendly uh, context which, which respects the law of the land. It's interesting because marketing is pushing for more and more, as we've been discussing, this deeper understanding of consumers. And yet on the opposite side, consumers are pushing back for more privacy. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Absolutely. I, I tell our clients that even without the laws, if you're going to just spam and bombard the clients with emails without consent, I think, you know, it's going to fall at some point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, ultimately, privacy is one of the ultimate luxuries. Absolutely. Well, I think that it's been so interesting to be able to hear your views on this because it is such a key topic right now. And we don't really get to hear much about how this is playing out in the marketing and in the advertising side of things. So I really want to thank you so much, Prantik, for taking the time and sharing your views. Really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. I'm glad we had this chat about technology, automation, personalization, but all of this in a human context. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, like your, your very first question of where have we moved from, we've come from mass communication down to personalization. But at the end of the day, marketing is really all about understanding and uncovering customers' pain points and trying to kind of understand and also be that gateway to the product side or the engineering side to kind of provide that feedback. So I think technology has to be a tool to kind of be that conduit help us build that bridge. So I think it's absolutely critical that we do it uh, in a manner that respects and provides value and some sort of meaning to the consumer. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, really, that's really, that's the key to making it work for both parties. Absolutely. It has to be a two-way value exchange for sure.
So when you're working under time pressure, under revenue pressure, you know, things are hard. But I think I think it's important, especially as leadership, to set uh, set the guardrails because otherwise, again, it's one of those things if you just optimize for the short-term goals, at some point in the medium to long run, uh, one will slip. Yes, that's very true. Well, thank you again, Prantik. I really appreciate your taking the time. And it's just been great talking to you. Same here, Jane. Pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me and would love to kind of continue the conversation and wish everyone all the very best. Yeah, well, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by the amount of industry information being dumped onto your desk or into your inbox, then take a look at the current situation where supply chain execs get only the news they really need summarized so that they can reclaim their time and their inboxes. You can learn more at thecurrentsituation.net. That's thecurrentsituation.net. Before you go, don't forget to check the Seat at the Table's website. You'll find all of the previous podcast episodes, other useful information, as well as how to contact us. You can find it at seatpodcast.net or in the show notes. That's all for now. I'm Jane Singer, and I'll see you in the next podcast episode.